Hi everyone, welcome back to Tokyo on Fire. Today is May 21st, 2018. There is probably not one issue, one single issue that encapsulates the administration of Prime Minister Abe and also encapsulates a lot of the things that we talk about here on Tokyo on Fire than the referendum issue to revise the Constitution. Michael, the LDP got together last week and they've revised some of the rules to handle a referendum, a potential referendum, if the issue passes the diet. It's a two-stage process. Well, actually three stages because both the House of Representatives and the House of Councillors has right. to pass an amendment by a two-thirds majority before it is put before the people. This is all outlined in Article 96 of mm -hmm. the Constitution. And indeed, Mr. Abe came into office promising both his supporters and but also the nation at, at large that he was going to make changes that were going to make it possible to amend the Constitution. And isn't that in fact, one of the keystone issues of the LDP. It is one of the founding issues of the LDP itself. We're going to it's change in, the Constitution. It's, it's in not the founding document of the party, 1955. Right. And now, through various ma maneuvers that he has done, he has he's putting in the, together the pieces that make it possible to get to an amendment. Right. And in this last bit that he's been doing, he's been that it's been a a reform of the law that he himself pushed forward and saw passed during his first administration, which was at that time to just establish a referendum because no such procedure right. existed. Mm -hmm. It existed only inside, theoretically inside the constitution in article 96, but there were no rules about it. Right. And at that time, uh, the coalition government of the Kobu Eto and, and the uh, Abe administration put together a package and passed a law that would even allow Article 96 to work. Now, this new set of, of reforms, a lot of people say they're really minor, but they matter to a certain constituency. Mm -hmm. uh, what it is going to say is we're going to expand the uh, the ability of the, people to vote. The voterability. Yeah, well, to, to expand, expand the number of people who can vote in uh, this referendum because there were areas that because of the electoral laws of Japan, ha have been traditionally ignored. There is, for example, not a, a real pro a procedure that is really energetic and brings people in to do votes for Japanese who are overseas. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly troublesome in the case uh, for Abe, uh, uh, having to do with the SDF, whether they are indeed in international dispatch over in Djibouti, or in the Arabian Sea, or they're men on ships. Right. And this issue of Article 9 revision, at least the one that Mr. Abe has, pro has produced, is vitally important to the SDF. Mm -hmm. And so, sure. yeah, they, it, it, for them it's really meaningful. Well, it, it, it impacts their existence. Well, that's what they say. The fact that the, the LDP and even the DPJ governments and the, and the government that the small interim government that existed in '93 have all said that the SDF are constitutional, right? And the Cabinet Legislative Bureau has said that it's constitutional since day one. And the Supreme Court says we're not going to touch the constitutionality issue of the SDF, mm -hmm. so it's out of their bailiwick. Nevertheless, for the SDF itself, for the Self Defense Forces. It's a crucial issue that they finally be put into the Constitution, even though functionally that's not been necessary mm -hmm. for 50 years. Right. You know, it, it, the two-step process, 
two-thirds of the lower house, two-thirds of the upper house need to vote that yes, this constitutional revision is appropriate. Mm -hmm. And then it goes to the general population. It needs to eclipse 51%. So the, the, it's not even actually a revision of the, the rules for running a referendum. It's kind of new stuff. Even getting the SDF to vote on this, that seems to be small peanuts. But what that tells me is that just getting past the 51%, you're in the gold then. Yeah, that's, there, that's one of the ways to look at it in that the uh, the level of the number of people who are willing to vote for any amendment for, on the constitution under Abe, if you look at the opinion polls, it looks like there's no way any amendment, you know, even let's make Japanese the Japanese language the official language of Japan, mm -hmm. if that were put into the constitution, Abe is so unpopular in terms of certain kinds of his power grabs that it, even that could fail. Right. Uh, so. You may be saying, yeah, he, maybe he's trying to stack the deck by getting these dispatched SDF people into the voter rolls where they normally would not be. Right. Because, well, because during the regular elections, if they're, if they're on their ships in the Pacific Ocean, they're essentially out of the process unless they did absentee voters before leaving port. Right. Well, some people will also just lodge a protest vote by not voting. Well, and, and the thing is, in terms of all of these things, you can also argue that very simply, in the case of Article 9 revision, which is really the only revision that anyone really cares about, right. uh, that the whole purpose of it is to please the SDF. If there's an even tiny fraction of the SDF that because of their national service cannot vote on the referendum, and the referendum fails, and let's say it fails by a close, small, small number of votes. There would be hell to pay. There would be hell to no pay. No kidding. And you have to applaud sure. the Abe administration for seeing that issue uh, on this, uh, what, what is otherwise a rote and, and not really important uh, change to the Constitution because everyone agrees that it's already constitutional. However, there is this incredible danger that if it indeed is brought up, and there are lots of people in the LDP, particularly Abe's faction leader, Hosoda, who have been pushing hard on this issue. Mm -hmm. And if it ever goes to a vote and it fails, sure. the fact that SDF members could not vote for this thing that the SDF cares about deeply would be politically uh, uh, just a, a, a hammer blow to the relations between civilian leaders and uh, the military. Looking at the spectrum of things that are already on the schedule, there is just a very narrow window of when a referendum could be held. It's really been, uh, Abe has wasted a year. He declared that he wanted to change the Constitution a year ago in May. And then again on May the 3rd, this year he said the same damn speech to the same darn people and virtually nothing had moved mm -hmm. in the meantime. Now we have these reforms to the referendum law to get the SDF basically. Small baby steps. Small baby right? steps. But he's out running out of time. Next year we have first the, the, the now very much thrown up in the air change over to the new emperor I mean, th that we were discussing this week, are we really going to change the era name, yes or no? Wait a minute, folks, we're getting close to this, right. and you don't, you're not sure? And we're gonna change the name before the, the actual day? We're going, we're, the, the, what, you're, 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 you haven't figured this part out? Right. That happens in the April-May transition period. Before that, you have the regular diet session, passing everything, getting it, the budget done. Mm -hmm. uh, and you want to schedule a referendum before it becomes 
really crucial, which is in 2019 July, when you have the House of Councillors election. Not only that, but the LDP election for Abe to serve a third term is in September. And, that, and so, so after September, right? After September. After September, before? Before April. Maybe And you have to February. somehow schedule in the period of debate, uh-huh. which, is, which is at least 100 days, right? And so people are looking and saying, Hurry it up, dudes. Right. You're not going to make the time. Mm-hmm. You're not going to make it because even though the polls for the, uh, for the Abe administration look very, are solidifying in terms of the cabinet and are solid in terms of support for the LDP, nevertheless, when it comes election time and in, in, when you're looking at the House of Councillors election, which is traditionally the, the election where the people... You know, that's where they do their protest voting. That's a long time away. It's not a long time away, but it, it's a long time away. But look, it, it, what, that's, they could lose their two-thirds majority in the House of Councillors, and then the process is over. Well, that's why the referendum needs to happen after the LDP has its vote, whether the prime minister can continue or not. It looks, it's, it's looking pretty solid for him. Let's put it that way. That, that, sure. that at least, we, we, don't, we don't have necessarily that much play in, in, in that issue. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless... Okay, st- starting clock, September. First of all, has it passed through the, house, the diet? No. So we have to open up right. an extraordinary session of Maybe the diet. Maybe two months, three months. And in an extraordinary session of the diet that is supposed to be dealing with the most fundamental law of Japan, which is the Constitution itself, you can't just do it for three days and then say, sure. okay, we vote on the, this, and then we start the period of public discussion. It's not going to work out that way. And everyone looking at the schedule says... It's, this, this, is, this, is, this is a nightmare. But it's going to happen, don't you think? Well, if it doesn't happen, then Abe will have failed. No, it's, it, it's got to happen. It is one of the things that he you know, has as a foundation piece of his administration. And that's why we're seeing this issue being handled when there are so many other issues to handle. Mm-hmm. Immediately after the breakdown in the, in the diet that occurred over the, the various testimonies of bureaucrats, and the need to bring these bureaucrats back in to talk about Kakegakuen, right. to talk about Moritomo Gakuen. Boy, that sure deflated his uh, approval ratings, didn't it, didn't it? It didn't seem to have affected his approval ratings, He's, though they are still underwater. A little bump in the, in the road. It's, it's maybe they're hoping that's the narrative out of that. But nevertheless, a lot of time was wasted, and we're here in the middle of late May right now. There's not much time left in the overall... Uh, regular session of the Diet to clean up all the other legislation that hasn't been passed so far. But pushing this first, yeah, that makes sense because at least they want to get right. this done to even be close to working on it starting from the, the starting gun when the LDP election occurs in September. So Michael, there are no experts on how a referendum is run because it's never happened. The Constitution has been in existence for 71 years. We're in seven, year 72. And there has never been any revision to the Constitution. That will happen if this referendum passes. What are the, what are the logistical points of moving forward? Is it something that can happen in a three-month period, a four-month period? Well, the thing is, is that there is experience with referendums on the local level either on the, on the municipal level or on the prefectural level. They have had referenda before. They are non-binding, but in certain cases, the, uh, the, the elected official who's in charge of that particular local administration has said, okay, we're going to run a referendum. If it passes, I will do this. Mm-hmm. 
And so they have the mechanism down. They know how these things work. It's just never been done on the national right. scale. And no, no gerrymandering. There's no gerrymandering because it's, the entire country is a single electoral right. district. There's no gerrymandering possible. However, uh, yeah, there could be hiccups. There could be issues in terms of how do we run it. And that's one of the reasons why they're doing this very special legislation. Mm -hmm. Okay, but there are a couple of issues that are in the pipeline right now that the prime minister could get a tremendous wind in his sail that would allow him not only to pass through the LDP stamp of certification, but also to launch the, the revision of the Constitution. He's meeting with Putin in, later this week in St. Petersburg. We've got the North Korean issue and perhaps some treatment of the abductees. If he won on both of those or either one of those, that would be a pretty big issue. It might help him in terms of both his election, his re-election as president of the LDP and thus his continuing on as prime minister. And yeah, it could provide some momentum to a referendum. Okay, get the mechanics down, that seems to be working. Have some nice video and some nice photo ops. Aren't I doing great? Aren't I doing great? Get past the presidential election, go to actually passing in an extraordinary diet the actual text and then put it to the public. Sure, but then we have yet to see at any point a time, any poll that has said, we want this to happen. In terms of a revision of Article 9, the divisions are one-third, one-third, one-third. One-third are for it, yep. one-third are against it, one-third There's don't, a tremendous no. swing vote, though. Yes, yeah, but, but there's, it, it has been discussed since day one of the second Abe administration, since right. 2012, December. And the public has gone nowhere on this, so that there is not a base for the referendum, even though the mechanics are being worked out. Okay, so challenge number one, two-thirds of the lower house. Challenge number two is two-thirds of the upper house. Challenge number three is 51% of all of the voters who vote on this referendum. Okay, 50% plus one person. Right. Okay, to be exact. Okay, so the only thing that we're waiting for is some sort of magic to happen so that the prime minister says, that's because of me, vote for me, let's get this referendum going and uh, change the constitution. Aren't I your guy? And some people are saying that you should have some kind of election, in fact, and use that as the justification for the procedure. Okay, fine, whatever. I'm, I'm not convinced that there's enough time. I'm not convinced yes, that there's an right. ability to do that. But at least this week, they got at least to the point of working out the mechanics, where, which is where you have to go. Okay. Could you possibly put the two together, a closing of the House of Representatives together with a referendum? Is that really too much of a stretch? Shouldn't the two be separated? And if the two are separated, do you even have enough time in this world to have a snap election after he becomes LDP? Uh, premier once again, and a referendum. Now, you can't do it as a single object because the, the, the time that you call an election has a fixed amount of time for the election to be held, which is shorter than the discussion period that's required in the referendum and law. And th then they would close they, down the house during the election period so it doesn't make uh, sense. They, yeah, they would, they would make no sense. So a combined election, referendum, and a house election, no. Okay. So that's not in the cards, but what they're talking about is, okay, Abe is reaching an impasse in terms of the diet. He, maybe he should just call an election. Folks, we just had an election. Yeah. You can't do this. He can do that. Yes, he can, but whether we should is the other mm -hmm. question. And if he does throw the house into 
disrespect, you know, just into the winds after less than a year, people are going to say he's just trying to hang on to power. Okay. So it's not any way except the regular format that is supposedly set down in the law in terms of the procedure. The problem is the framing. Mm -hmm. There are extraneous issues, the emperor and the House of Counselors election, which are putting, and of course the, the September election for the LDP, which are putting the entire process into a vice from which nobody can see how to pry the referendum out of there. Okay, the prime minister is running out of time. We are too in this segment. Let's get to some predictions, Michael. Do you think the LDP will vote the prime minister in for a third term? I think that looks pretty solid right now. The, uh, the polling has not reflected a continued decline in the, in the ability of the opposition and rivals within the party even, to talk him down. Even in terms though of the, the mud is being thrown up, it's even, just kind of slithering off. It's not working, at least it doesn't seem to be uh, causing a catastrophic collapse, which is what they would need. Right. Uh, there are a few more months left before the election. Maybe something can happen. We will see. I think it's in the bag. I think it's in the bag as well, but it will not set up a referendum on the Constitution is my guess. Okay, let's make the second prediction, which is about the referendum, timing of the referendum. When do you think that that most likely is going to happen? I don't think it's going to happen at all. I think it's going to all go down to the, he tried very hard, but we ran out of time. Uh, that has happened many times in uh, the Abe administration. His trying, not succeeding, has been a hallmark of everything that they've been doing. And that, you know, you know, oh, more, you, know you, you tried, you know, right. that's very good. Uh, he, he's been treated with, with entirely, well, many of his, of course, rivals think, way too much leeway by the public. But, you know, on the things that he has tried and failed, there, has been, there have been no repercussions. Who else is there? Who else is there? Okay, my prediction is that it will happen before February. Please stay tuned to Tokyo on Fire where we talk about these issues and try and encapsulate them, taking divergent parts and making them make sense to you. Please stay tuned. Join us now, ladies and gentlemen. Hi everyone, welcome back to Tokyo on Fire Inside Baseball. In today's episode of Inside Baseball, I'm privileged to welcome Dr. James Brown, the foremost authority on Japan-Russian relations in Tokyo. Welcome back. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. I think it's my third time. Yes, well, you're doing so great. We get great comments every time you come on the show, so thank you very much. Pleasure. President Vladimir Putin is feeling his oats. He's the fourth term president of the, the Russian Federation. Well, that's right, and that has a big impact on relations between Japan and Russia. We have a situation now where Putin has been safely re-elected to um, his next six-year term surprise, as surprise. president. No great surprise there. And also Abe has been fairly recently re-elected as well. And this is a point that Prime Minister Abe has made himself, mm -hmm. that now that these two leaders have potentially a significant amount of time together right. at uh, the, in the leadership of, of their respective countries, perhaps it's an opportunity for them to actually deal with some of the remaining long-term issues that have, have plagued this relationship. Right, the dynamics are not really very good, are they? They're meeting in five days in St. Petersburg at an economic summit. They have time together, there's a lot going on there, but they will have a, a scheduled time to talk about the relationship and about how they're going to move forward, isn't that right? Well, there are actually two parts to the visit. You're right, first of all, uh, Prime Minister Abe is going to St. Petersburg for the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum. 
the focus there uh, will be on economic issues. And so the thing to look for there is whether they have some significant economic deals that they're going to be able to announce. But then a bigger thing for Japan-Russia relations is actually the next day. Then the focus shifts to, to Moscow, uh, where they're going to be having the, the celebration, the official opening of the year of Japan-Russia. And along with that, in Moscow, there will also be uh, summit talks between the two leaders. And that's where we might see some potential announcements related to issues on the disputed islands and, um, you know, the attempt to make some progress towards a peace treaty. Right. So just to recap for viewers who don't know this, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Japan. And after that, immediately after that, the Soviet Union invaded the Northern Territories in preparation for approaching Hokkaido and the, the main islands, and the United States put a stop to that, but those islands were never given up, and that's what the controversy is about, right? Yeah, that's essentially right. So it's worth remembering that during the Second World War, the Soviet Union and Japan were not at war for most of it. Uh, you're right, the Soviet Union was reluctant in approaching Japan, and they had a, a treaty of, of uh, friendship. Well, they had a, a neutrality uh, pact, which was signed in April 1941. We're friends. And that meant that, well, they weren't exactly friends. It was clearly um, an agreement which suited their geopolitical interests at the time. Now, the Soviet Union uh, wanted to, to concentrate on uh, the situation in, in Europe. It didn't want its uh, Far East to be attacked by, they were by glad Japan. They were glad when the, the Germans were attacking that the Japanese were quiet. Well, exactly. And from the Japanese perspective, also, they wanted to make sure that uh, their northern frontier uh, would, be, would be quiet. We can focus on the Americans coming in from the Philippines and Okinawa. And you um, have to keep in mind also that uh, in 1941, uh, Soviet Union and Japan were effectively, well, they had a, a land border together because Japan, of course, at that right. time was in Manchuria bordering directly on the Soviet Far East. So they had that agreement, but then when it came to 1945, what took place was there was an agreement, a secret agreement made at Yalta between the United States, uh, Britain and the Soviet Union, which was that the Soviet Union would join the war against Japan after the end of the conflict in Europe. Mm -hmm. And so the Soviet Union stuck with that agreement and you um, betcha. they kept, it was, sort of last minute thing, it was supposed to be within three months after the end of the war in Europe, and they, they did it pretty much to the day. Right. And then they attacked Japanese positions in Manchuria, down into to Korea, in Sakhalin, and then later on, they moved down the, the Kuril chain, and eventually they occupied the now disputed islands. Mm -hmm. One of the things which is particularly sensitive for the Japanese side is, well, firstly, that this um, Soviet attack came um, when Japan was more or less already defeated, Honest so back, right. the, the Japanese side says. And then added to that, the actual occupation of these islands was only completed at the beginning of September. So that's long after the 15th of August when Japan announced its intention to accept uh, the Potsdam Declaration. A little bit of dirty pool really didn't sit well with uh, MacArthur, did it? Well, I mean, the Japanese side say that this was an underhand uh, step, it was a stab in the back, but from the, the Soviet perspective and the perspective, the narrative you still hear from Fair the Russian game. side, which was, no, this was a commitment which we had to our allies, mm -hmm. to the United States, to Britain, and we stuck with our agreement. Right. The Soviet Union 
uh, was the victor of the Second World War, Japan was the loser, and so again from Moscow's point of view, Japan should expect to have, have lost some territory. Right. Right. I understand that General MacArthur threatened the Soviet Union by saying, you know, those two bombs we have, that's not all we have. If you approach Hokkaido, you'll see what we've got in store. Well, this is the thing which is uh, enormously kind of debated about uh, what the reasonings were behind uh, Truman's decision to, to use the, the nuclear weapons, to what extent it was to end the war quickly, mm -hmm. to what extent it was a message to the Soviet Union. And, um, you know, academics um, spend... Uh, well, their lifetimes looking at this issue, and I don't think we can really get to the bottom of it, but certainly it's worth recognizing that there are arguments on both sides, right. and certainly many people believe that particularly the second bomb was really a message to the Soviet Union, right. back off, we have potentially more of these weapons. Well, weren't they primed to, uh, to invade Hokkaido? Well, the, uh, the Soviet side, after um, the, the end of the war, asked for an occupation zone uh, in Hokkaido which would have been around half of the, the island, and uh, the US said no. Just to divvy it up, just like we're going to do with, with Germany. Well, exactly. So, um, in some ways, you could make the case that Japan was really quite lucky in that they could have ended up not just sure. with losing these four islands, which Japan says are part of their inherent territory, but also you could have had uh, the division of Hokkaido, like Germany, like Korea. Right. So let's get to the issue that's on stage right now. The Prime Minister will meet with uh, the President of the Russian Federation in five days. Yes, so it's going to be their, uh, their 21st meeting. And Prime Minister Abe has put an enormous amount of effort into this relationship. It's been something that he always seems to have had a great interest in. And um, in 2016, in May, he announced uh, what was described as a new approach to Russia. That was about a year ago, right? Uh, well, May 2016, so it's now two years. Okay. And um, that is his real kind of big push to try and make some progress in fully normalizing this relationship. Now, it's worth saying that the two sides are not officially at war. Although they don't have a peace treaty, in 1956 they signed a joint declaration which put an end to the state of war, but it didn't actually settle finally the issue and have a peace treaty, and that's because of the island dispute. Mm -hmm. So what Abe would dearly like to do sign is that to document. sign that document, but that means overcoming uh, the, the territorial issue. Right. And so that's where this new approach comes in. And what it consists of is a softening of Japan's initial demands over the islands. Ultimately, Abe still wants to get all four back, but he recognizes that Japan has been pushing for that for decades and has gotten nowhere. Right. So instead, I think quite sensibly, he's reduced his initial demand. Let's try and get some sort of progress and who knows where it might lead. But for that, there need to be some incentives for the Russian side. Right. And those incentives are economic. Mm -hmm. So along with that new approach, which includes lots of political dialogue between the two leaders, there is also the eight-point economic cooperation plan. And that's what the focus will be on when the two sides meet in St. Petersburg. Okay, it seems to me that the Prime Minister is looking for any good news, anything he can hang his hat on and say, see, I brought home the bacon to the Japanese population. He needs to really do well. And in foreign policy areas, usually that's where a, a leader gets, you know, some pretty good traction. So I, I think he'll probably come home with some, some good news, but he's not really asking for a lot. And whatever he gets, it will involve a relinquishment of Jap 
Japan's claim for those four islands. Wouldn't you agree? Well, I think we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves there. So uh, let's look uh, in detail at what's going to happen, taking advantage of the fact this is inside baseball. So right. um, I mentioned that he's reduced his demand. So what is he actually looking for? Well, it's to do with joint economic activities on the island. We're going to give you money. Well, that would certainly be part of it, but we're talking about really quite small-scale projects here. Uh, the initial agreement to talk about joint economic activity on the islands uh, was reached when President Putin visited Japan in December 2016. Mm -hmm. And since then, they've been talking about it. Subsequently, last year, they made agreement on having five priority projects that were going to go first. And none of these are particularly exciting for the actual substance of the project. We're talking about things like a little bit of uh, wind energy being produced. Fisheries. Some, yep, so um, some aquaculture, so maybe right. some scallops or something like that. Right. Uh, some tourism, uh, waste management, and greenhouse agriculture, maybe growing some strawberries. So these are not kind of big projects, right. but they are symbolically and politically very important. Once and again, the baby reason, steps. Right. The reason for that is because for Japan to agree to them, the condition is that they have to be done in such a way that does not damage Japan's legal position. So this is where we get really into the sort of technical legal things. So if Japan in a normal way were to invest on the islands, were to send Japanese citizens to work there... Visit that the graves, would, Well, right? that's a separate issue. But on the economic issue, if they were to do it in normal circumstances, it would be essentially recognizing Russian sovereignty because yes, they would have a Russian visa, right. they would be paying tax to the Russian authorities, they would be subject to Russian courts. So Japan is not going to agree to that. Mm -hmm. So that's the obstacle to these joint economic activities taking place. The Japanese side wants them to be done under a special legal framework which is separate from Russian law. And so that's the absolute kind of core element to Abe's Russia visit. Can he get agreement on this legal framework. Okay. And so that's what he's hoping for. So that the legal framework is not a Japan issue, that's a, a Russian Federation issue. That's a, a legal issue nationally to them with regard to perhaps uh, the four islands or with regard to Japan, right? Absolutely. It would constitute a, a concession by Russia on the issue of sovereignty. They would essentially be saying that these islands are different in some way from the rest of Russian territory. Mm -hmm. We're allowing Japanese to come there to kind of invest, operate in a different way. And so that's why Abe is so interested in this, because that's the first step, the baby step towards mm -hmm. another kind of more potentially major concession. But the problem here is, are the Russians going to agree to it? Right. Now, you mentioned briefly this thing about grave visits, and that's a really important point, because to an extent there is a precedent for this. Because since the early 1990s, there has been an arrangement which allows uh, Japanese citizens to go to the islands to visit ancestral graves without traveling there on a Russian visa. So there are these special boat trips which operate every summer. There are several of them. They take former residents, uh, their relatives, and to be honest, kind of journalists, other interested people. It's still on now. Oh, absolutely. And it happens every uh, summer. There is a special boat called the Etopirika, which operates from Nemuro Harbour in Hokkaido, and it takes these people to the islands so they can go back to their homeland, their Furusato. Now, Abe has also sought to expand that by having flights to take the, the former residents. And the mm -hmm. first of those 
uh, took place last year, eventually occurring in September. So he'll also want that to continue. But it's much easier to have these short-term visa-free visits for a limited number of people. It's a much bigger concession right. to agree to this legal framework. Mm -hmm. So looking at what the Russian officials have been saying recently, it seems unlikely that Abe is going to come back from Moscow, I think, with an agreement on the legal framework. Okay. And so I don't think he's going to be able to come back with something that he can then sell to uh, the Japanese public and present as a major foreign policy victory. And there are a couple of bits of evidence there. When Foreign Minister Lavrov visited Japan in March, just before arriving, he said, I don't see the, I don't see the need for a supranational framework, suggesting that uh, Japanese companies should invest in special economic zones under Russian law. And more recently, uh, Deputy Foreign Minister Morgulov also said that really we're at the very start of this process. So I think what's going to happen is more agreement about additional talks. I don't think this is going to be a breakthrough summit. Uh -huh. But the prime minister also has been uh, very judicious in how he deals with the Russian Federation and joining initiatives by the G7, for example. So there are a lot of initiatives where the G7 is ganging up on, on the Russians and Japan is saying, well, we don't want to go that far, sometimes they reluctantly participate, but there are lots of issues. The ejection of the Russian officials, for example, or the, um, the serene uh, gas uh, claim uh, in Syria, that sort of thing. Yeah, you've hit on an absolutely crucial issue there, that this approach, this new approach to Russia by Abe is not cost-free. That's right. And um, I think there's quite a lot of frustration within other G7 members. About like the, the United States. That, well, like Britain as well, yes. about uh, Japan distancing itself uh, from the G7 position. Now, the Japanese government would absolutely say that's not the case. They would point to the We fact are bound. We are together. That after the annexation of Crimea, Japan joined sanctions against Russia. It was the only Asian country uh, to do so. South Korea didn't do the same thing. Uh, so they did join them. But if you actually look at what those sanctions include, they're incredibly weak. Right. There were uh, 23 Russians which were included within that list. They never announced who these individuals are. Who so they are? Not... There are 23 of them, though. And we know that they're not some of the most high-profile Russian officials because mm -hmm. so many of them have visited um, uh, Japan, including you know um, controversial figures like the head of the, the Russian Armed Forces, Valery Gerasimov, uh, he visited uh, Japan at the end of, of last year, as did uh, the head of the, the Russian army, Salyukov, who's pictured driving around in a, in a Japanese tank. These are sorts of things which in NATO countries, in, in G7 countries, mm -hmm. you know, are really quite kind of shocking uh, images. You also mentioned the situation with the Skripal case. Right. And uh, that was something which I think created quite a lot of frustration within the UK. So this was the incident, of course, that happened on the, the 4th of March when a, uh, a Russian uh, well, former double agent who'd been working for British intelligence but was now in retirement in the UK, along with his daughter, was, was poisoned by apparently this, um, this nerve agent that had been produced by the, the Soviet Union. Military grade. So they say. Yes. And um, the British government took a very strong position. It lobbied all of its partner countries, its allies, and a very large number of them joined the UK in pointing the finger at Russia. And then and ejecting a bunch of right. a lot of diplomats. And Huge. Japan wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. There was a phone call from the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, 
to Abe to try and encourage him to take a stronger stance, he wouldn't do it. Also, uh, the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, did the same, calling Kono. Also, Japan wouldn't move. And they stuck for a very long time to this position, saying, we condemn the use of chemical weapons, we call for a full investigation, but they wouldn't take stronger action. And it was only eventually when the foreign ministers of the G7 met mm -hmm. in Canada, several weeks later, that Japan, I think fearing isolation, eventually signed a joint statement uh, saying it looks like Russia was responsible. Just a couple of months ago, right. But by then, they'd already signaled to the Russian side that, frankly, we're not really on board with right. the, the G7. So the prime minister is kind of giving a lot in hopeful anticipation that it will be reciprocated, and it doesn't look like there's much reciprocation in the pipeline. That's right, but uh, it's not just about the islands. If it was just about the islands, I think you could fairly be very critical of Abe and say that this is extremely naive, right. it's an obsession about these islands, but there's more to it as well. Okay, so let's talk about China and Russia. Exactly, so this is the strategic angle. Right. And if you look at East Asia, Russia is not a threat. Uh, there isn't a Russian diaspora in other countries that they might um, feel an obligation to protect. Um, it's not a revisionist power. It's not trying to extend its influence. It's a status quo power. Right. So Japan's concern, of course, is Northeast Asia. Its concern is with China. It's with North Korea. And so from a strategic perspective, it makes a huge amount of sense to neutralize a problem with your northern neighbor. In a way, it goes back to what we were talking about in 1941. Right. You know, you um, eliminate the problems that you can so you can concentrate better on the more pressing issues. So just recently, um, the Japanese government issued the Diplomatic Blue Book, this annual publication. And I looked at the section on Russia there, and it's very, very clear. It says that the relationship with Russia is Japan's bilateral relationship with the greatest potential. It goes on to say that building a relationship of uh, appropriate ties of partnership within the region serves not only Japan's national interests, but also the cause of peace and prosperity in Northeast Asia. It couldn't be clearer. That's why they're doing it. It's not just about the islands. It's also about ensuring that uh, Russia is not in a hostile kind of position towards Japan, does not forge a sort of common front against Japan with China. Non-participatory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't expect, um, you know, to forge a, an alliance, a partnership with Russia. They just need to neutralize Russia as a potential threat in the sense of it joining with China. Right. So you're not really very positive about an outcome with the Putin Abe meeting in five days' time. No, I'm not. I mean, they... Um, it's not going to be a disaster either, I think. There will be some agreements uh, to announce. And in fact, um, Abe gave an interview with uh, Russian state television. It's going to be broadcast on the, the eve of the visit, but some snippets of it have already been uh, released on the internet. Mm -hmm. And in that, he emphasizes cooperation with Russia in the areas of, of medicine, of high technology, um, of uh, kind of improving the standard of living for ordinary Russians. So I think they'll be able right. to make some agreements there. That will be what takes place um, in St. Petersburg on the first day. On the second day, I think they'll make an agreement allowing an additional flight to take place this year so that former residents who used to live on these islands and then were expelled by the Soviet Union can visit the islands this year uh, in a special kind of charter flight. Okay. 
Um, and I think also they'll um, come up with an agreement to continue talks about working out the nitty gritty of these joint economic activities. But as I say, the major obstacle remains of that legal framework. And frankly, I don't see how they can overcome that hurdle. Right. Interestingly, the Russians have made a counter proposal. A few senior Russian politicians have floated the idea of creating a visa-free zone that would apply to all of Hokkaido and to all of Sakhalin. Now, it's Sakhalin region that administers the four disputed islands. So this would mean that residents of Hokkaido and the Sakhalin region, including the islands, could you know, freely you know, move between Russia and Japan. There's some precedent for this. Norway and Russia have a small visa-free area. Mm -hmm. But here I think it's not the Russian side that would say no, but rather the Japanese side. I think many on the Japanese side would be worried about having such a, an open right. agreement uh, with their northern neighbor. But would, can't you imagine what, what a wonderful thing it would be to have cruise ships, Japanese cruise ships, or maybe even Russian cruise ships, traveling and traversing the, the four islands because it's just gorgeous up there. It's pristine, several active volcanoes, lots of fishing going on. Uh, that would be really something. Well, it's a great point. And um, it's actually something that they can potentially agree on um, in a few days that would be a manageable element of the joint economic projects on the islands. Because if you have these boat trips, which could circle the islands, go through the waters, but not actually you know, have Japanese citizens setting foot on the islands, the visa issue isn't such right. a problem. And that would, yeah, again, it's a small step, but it would allow Japanese citizens to get closer to this territory that they haven't controlled since 1945. Right. President Putin and Prime Minister Abe will be meeting. They'll be discussing a lot of these issues. We're going to continue to watch it. You should too. Please stay tuned.